0: This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Santon Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit
1: actuarialsociety.org.za.
2: Welcome everybody to um, to this this session. Uh, I'm Dave Strugnell. I have the the privilege of chairing it. Um, The topic being the sustaining the life insurance industry as we know it in the fourth industrial revolution, which is obviously a topic that gets a lot of uh, of hot air. Uh, I'm pleased to say that our speaker today, Lynn Malloy, is not one of those providers of hot air, somebody who thinks very deeply about this. Um, I first met Lynn several years ago when I was an insurer, she was at a reinsurer, and we've had numerous uh, really entertaining and enlightening discussions around this topic over over the years, um, and this is In fact, uh, part of what you'll hear today comes from Lynn's uh, very rigorous uh, MBA research on on this topic. Uh, I'll let her tell you more about it, but just a last note from me before I hand over to Lynn. Uh, The structure of this is going to be slightly different to the norm, so rather than kind of having the presentation and then finishing with questions... Lynn is going to get to a point in the presentation where she will kind of pose a few scenarios which will invite discussion from you. That'll also be your opportunity to ask some questions. Uh, and then I'll shut that down about four or five minutes from time so that Lynn can, can wrap up and, uh, and close. So those burning questions, you've got slightly less time to, uh, to, to think them up today. So without further ado, uh, would you join me in welcoming Lynn Malloy?
0: Cool. Uh, Thanks, Dave, uh, for that really nice introduction, and thanks to all of you for joining on the sort of last session, I think, before the closing, um, on the second day of the Actuarial Convention. Really appreciate it. Um, I think let's jump straight straight in. I've got a lot of stuff to share, so I don't want to waste time. Um, But maybe before we even get into the slides, I think it's worth just sharing sort of Um, the purpose of this presentation, and and for those that have read the paper or not, I think the purpose for me is to share the research that I've done. As Dave said, I've spent a lot of time sort of researching this topic as part of my um, MBA dissertation, but also I'd like to use this opportunity to sort of consider future scenarios and really leverage the sort of brain power that's in this room to sort of explore what might happen. There's so much uncertainty in the future and this is a huge topic and no one person has all the answers. So I'm quite keen for us really to kind of apply ourselves and put our heads together and see what we can come up with. Cool. Okay, so the other thing I wanted to do before getting into the slides was just give you a little bit of context um, about why I actually did this research in the first place. And I'm hoping that by doing this, I'll share some stuff with you that resonates with you and we can sort of start this journey together on the same page. Um, And the first piece is the hype, right? So sort of for me, particularly in the last five or so years, there's been huge hype in the insurance industry. Lots of these buzzwords being thrown around, you know, like AI and the internet of things and um, machine learning and lots of these words being thrown around. But the hype and the reality are are quite distinct and different. So if you sort of take a step back, and even though everyone in the industry is very familiar with all these real cool terms and buzzwords, we look at what we've actually done, the industry hasn't really fundamentally changed a whole lot in this time. Um, and I found um, in, in the interviews that I conducted as part of my research, one of the executives shared a story with me which I thought was quite enlightening on this topic. And he, he told a story about the executive team of that insurer had kind of taken a trip to Silicon Valley. And the whole purpose was to sort of immerse themselves in this new technology and this, all the this sort of cutting edge organizations, what are they doing and sort of drive some inspiration. And when they got back, he he turned to one of his colleagues and he said, so what did you think, you know, what did you think of this trip? What did you gain? And his colleague kind of said dismissively, "Ah, you know, it was all the same old stuff. And he sort of, he said to me, he kind of thought to himself, that's true, but what of that stuff do we have implemented in our business? Um, And I think that says a lot. I think executives in in life insurance and even sort of the rest of the actors in the life insurance industry, we quite desensitize to these sort of buzzwords and and change ultimately because we hear about it so much, but how much are we actually doing? Um, The next piece is the disruption piece, right? So this is the like, oh, there's going to be a new startup or a giant tech company that's going to disrupt the insurance uh, industry and change everything. But, you know, fast forward five to 10 years and it's still the big incumbents that are dominating and not not really much has changed. And then the last piece, which I found quite interesting, is that every year we see more restructures, transformation, exercises, all these sort of like big things happening, particularly at the big corporates. But again, you step back and fundamentally, the outcomes haven't changed much. And this is really what inspired me to do this research. And I've seen a few heads kind of nodding as I've been talking, so I hope that you can relate to this. But it's really about what is going on here. So, um, I, I mean, the, the sort of that question comes that comes to mind then is, you know, while other industries are in fact being disrupted, the life insurance industry has just sort of remained pretty strong. Sure, there's some tough economic conditions, but ultimately we've been doing quite well. And that sort of raises the question is that, is our industry actually just innately resilient? Can we sort of sit back for the next 200 years, continue what we're doing and be pretty comfortable and secure that we'll continue to make money and we'll continue to have jobs? And this is really kind of where the crux of my research came in. It was one about understanding where that resilience comes from. You know, maybe we can. Can we kind of just sit back and keep doing what we're doing? And if not, then what do we need to do? And what are those things that are changing and that are are kind of going to start eroding this resilience? So those are kind of the two questions that I'm going to try and answer in the – well, I'm going to leave you with some thoughts on. in this presentation, but really, what I want you to leave here with today is a few answers. So I've done a lot of research, and I, I hope that I've uncovered some things which would be new and interesting to you. But really, I think what you're gonna leave with is more questions and and maybe some ideas. I think this is a bit, really big, hairy topic, and it's an evolving topic, and it's something that we need to keep thinking about. There's no quick quick fix here. For, so for those of you who thought you are gonna walk out of here and be like, excellent, we all know what to do, I think you can leave now because <laughs> that's unfortunately not going to happen. Um, okay, so then just to sort of frame um, what I did, um, I, I sort of conducted some, some research as well as some market engagement. On the research side, it was looking at the sort of future context that we're facing, and, and that's very much the sort of emerging fourth industrial revolution. Um, It was looking at life insurance specifically, how that differs to other industries, how we need to think about life insurance differently to potentially other industries that are being disrupted or affected by the fourth industrial revolution. Um, And then lastly, looking at, the other piece that I looked at was um, Just look at sort of like the the literature that's out there. There's been lots of research done. So strategy, innovation, literature, organizational theory, and I've kind of like trolled through a lot of that and try to summarize what I think is most relevant. Then on the engagement side, um, I conducted interviews with 12 executives or leaders from across the industry. I would have loved to have conducted more, but as you can imagine, it's really quite difficult to get into these people's diaries. Um, And fortunately, the qualitative studies show that on any particular research area with at least 12 detailed interviews, you should have data saturation and credible results as a result. Um, So, of these 12 um, execs that I interviewed, they represented eight insurance companies. Um, That was the five large dominant players in the life insurance space, as, as well as three Uh, medium, small, small or startup kind of depending how you want to classify them. In terms of the roles themselves, um, (laughs) there were three CEOs. Four executives that led established business operations, three execs from emerging operations, so new more innovative stuff, and two technology executives. So quite a nice spread of across the sort of established emerging kind of space. And of those 12, six were actuaries. So also quite a nice balance between actuaries and non-actuarial. Okay, so let's jump into it. Um, I think before we start answering this question about resilience, we need to understand the context. And the fourth industrial revolution is the one piece that I'm going to focus on. But then we can zoom zoom out even further into the broader context of creative destruction and this ongoing cycle that we see in the business world. And I'll touch on that more next. in terms of the fourth industrial revolution, it's probably it's another one of these buzzwords that everyone's quite familiar with, but really the term was actually only coined in 2015 by Klaus Schwab. He's the executive chair of the World Economic Forum, so it's actually quite a recent term. And then. Um, it's probably useful to give it some broader context, um, just in terms of what were the predecessors of the fourth industrial revolution, just to kind of place it, um, for those that have whose history is a bit rusty. But the first industrial revolution kicked off about 300 years ago, and that was really with the sort of utilizing steam power, right? Um, using steam power to mechanize production and ultimately, ultimately moving society from agriculture to industry. Uh, then about 200 years ago, there was the um, Second industrial revolution, that was about electricity, right, so that was now taking us from basic industrialization to mass production and really taking society more towards urbanization. Then the third industrial revolution or what's commonly referred to as the digital revolution kicked off in 1971 with the invention of the microchip and this sort of drove the electronics broom and um, like improvements in productivity as a result of automation. Um, and the, so, we're still in the, the, the digital revolution at the moment, but what, what Klaus Schwab is arguing is that we are starting to see the, the next revolution, which is the fourth industrial revolution. And often the fourth industrial revolution is, I'm just going to say 4IR, it's quite a mouthful. <laughs> so. What 4R is often mistakenly um, characterized as a specific technology. So when you ask people what is the fourth industrial revolution, they say, oh, IoT, AI, uh, nanotechnology, or 3D printing, or whatever it might be. And, and that's a common misconception. What the fourth industrial revolution really is, is that it's, it sort of transcends the patterns set by the previous revolutions, in that it's no longer technology as a tool. It's no longer steam power, electricity, microchip. Um, what the fourth industrial revolution brings is actually a coalescence of technologies across multiple industries and in multiple spheres, and it's really about the combinatorial uh, power of those, of those um, technologies. And ultimately, the real purpose of the fourth industrial revolution is to achieve human augmentation. And I know that sounds a bit sci but when you understand what that means, it's, it really makes a lot of sense. So what it's saying is that with all these sort of coalescing technologies that cover sort of auto, almost every aspect of life, what we're able to do now is take the best of human ability whether that's creativity, interpersonal skills, strategic thinking, and take the best from technology, processing power, memory, those sorts of things, and really collaborate between those two to ultimately achieve a much better outcome and allow humans to focus on what it is that we're really great at. Um, And if you just think of a nice example to make it kind of tangible, in the medical space it's probably an easier way to look at it, but if you think of, you know, these sort of, the nanotechnology development, sending like these mini drones into your bloodstream, linking these dro- drones through the Internet of Things to devices in the hands of doctors and possibly even patients, using artificial intelligence to sort of, sort of whittle through and distill all this huge amount of information that's being collected and ultimately come up with diagnoses. And then, I mean, potentially, in in terms of organ transplants and and sort of other biological enhancements, combining biotech and 3D printing to kind of create sort of um, biological matter to insert in our bodies. I mean, there's just – I suppose it illustrates the point in that there is – it's sort of a coalescing technology. It's not just one technology happening. It's kind of changing the whole – the way that we do things. Um, And I suppose what that's really talking to is a sort of moving away from a linear way of thinking, right? It's no longer technology as a tool. What can I do with this digital capability? How can I take this existing process and just automate it? It's about re-looking at the entire system in which that process exists and questioning the relevance of that process um, or or how how we can achieve the purpose in an entirely different way. So it is quite a, a minefield, but it really is a different way of thinking. The second piece is the speed of change. Um, And this isn't something unique to the fourth industrial revolution. It's more of a mega trend, but it's definitely something that feeds into the fourth industrial revolution and something which we need to be aware of. Um, And I think the easiest way to sort of tangibly illustrate this is by looking at the lifespan, the average lifespan of an S&P 500 company. And we see that in 1964, that was about 33 years. By 2016, about 24 years by 2027 projected to be only 10 years. And this is indicative of the sort of rate of change and rate of turnover in the business world. Um, And if we think about ourselves, um, combining the speed of change with this sort of linear thinking, as an industry, in fact all industries, but we're sort of overwhelmed by the sort of breadth and speed at which new technologies and new changes are coming up. And, And what we've typically done in the past is try to apply the way that we've treated technology in the past, we take it, we see where it can be applied, integrate and upgrade, integrate and upgrade. But what we end up doing is always being on the back foot, and we're really missing that opportunity to kind of re-look at fundamentally how we do things. So the speed of change doesn't give us a lot of leeway in terms of how to manage this change. The next piece... Um, are is ecosystems, and this is a major trend that's sort of coming out of the fourth industrial revolution. And what that speaks to is that value chains are ultimately disaggregating and kind of reforming into these networks of specialist roles and functions, um, where each role and function is becoming valued as a standalone entity in itself. Um, and as an entrepreneurial type person, this offers massive opportunity because what used to be quite stagnant value chains are now very sort of um, spread out and lots of, lots of sort of specialist functions to tap into. But from a life insurance industry as well, is what it means is that, is that there's far more opportunity for us to look at how to improve different aspects of our business or our service provi- um, to our clients. Uh, The last piece that I want to talk about in this context is the um, skills relevance. Um, And this is that piece of kind of the cliche, right? The robots are going to take over and, you know, the singularity (laughs) is going to replace all of us. Um, And I think that it's when we think about it, it's actually far more nuanced than that, right? Um, You know, humans, as I've said, still have skills that are not replaceable by robots. Um, It's really about viewing... Viewing the outcome of the fourth, um, viewing the fourth industrial revolution as an opportunity to do what we do better um, and, and what, but, but collaborating with technology still requires technical skill, right? And that's where this sort of like skills relevance issue and the enormous skills gap that's highlighted across various reports across the industry um, comes into play. and And I suppose... Lots of companies look externally to fill these gaps, right? Like bring in the consultants, bring in the experts. Let's poach that person that's really great at innovation or technology. But the skills gap is huge, and poaching a little few people here and there is not going to fill it. And the real opportunity that's being missed is the, the the ability to sort of fill these skills organically. And a 2016 Accenture survey, this was of ten and a half thousand employees across ten different countries. It showed that. Um, of employees were very much aware that in order to remain relevant, they need to develop their skills. But what was even more exciting is that 85% of these people were willing to commit time to develop their skills in their free time. These are like like the employees sitting at their desks in our businesses that are hungry to learn and grow and really just waiting there to be tapped into and sort of fill the gap that we're facing. Um, But I think the point also for us as actuaries is that a good qualification is no longer enough to sustain your own relevance in the future. This is something you know, that you're going to need to continuously develop to remain relevant. The speed of change doesn't allow you to get a qualification and sort of sit back and say, great, I do risk stuff and I'm sorted for the rest of my life. This is a kind of a time where we need to continuously develop ourselves. Okay, so. As you can tell from my excitement, it's quite easy to get caught up in the Fourth Industrial Revolution stuff. Um, But I I think it's important to kind of recognize that a lot of the business issues raised in interrogating this whole Fourth Industrial Revolution movement um, are not new. And and what it means is that we can actually leverage the work that's been done by experts and researchers um, in a sort of broader context and, and, and use some of that to inform our path going forward. So if we start with um, uh, the creative destruction, this was a term that was coined in 1942 by the godfather of innovation, um, Joseph Strumpeter. But all all that it's really saying is it's it's this sort of enduring search for profit that drives a repeated process of new ideas and new innovations coming to the surface, destroying an existing equilibrium and setting a new equilibrium. And that's quite an intuitive cycle, right? That's kind of like how the business world works. And in in one way, what we can then think of is that the fourth industrial revolution is really just another wave of this creative destruction that we've been facing for decades. Um, The next piece is the success syndrome. And this is really just a, a sort of natural consequence of the business life cycle. So if we look at the business life cycle hope you can see that. I mean, we all know, right, it's the S-curve. But ultimately, what, what the organizations have a natural tendency, as they're moving through that innovation, differentiation, maturity stage, they're constantly looking to the market for feedback. How can they optimize their processes um, and deliver their service more effectively and more efficiently? And it's the sort of continual process that ultimately leads to what they call cultural inertia and structural inertia, and ultimately structural inertia is just setting up sort of structures and processes that reinforce an existing way of doing things and enable it to be done quicker and better and cultural inertia is is similarly just a sort of a culture that develops in terms of how we do things and why we do things, and that kind of develops around optimizing delivering um, the service that we 're trying to provide and um, so I mean, short term, both of these things are great, right? They help us to get better and better at what it is that we're doing. But in the long term, they ultimately lead to that decline, right? They prevent us from adapting and changing. Um, and, and, And another interesting sort of phenomenon which arrives and very much drives that decline at the end is what they call the culture paradox, And that's saying that the culture that's sort of of really stimulated and driven the success of your organization initially actually becomes the biggest inhibitor to change and future relevance going forward. So these are quite sort of like global issues that that the fourth industrial revolution can really be considered as part of. Um, The next piece are these sort of natural dilemmas that emerge, right? And um, the first that that I'm looking at two uh, that I think are most relevant here, but the first is William Abernathy's productivity dilemma. And this is very much the the dilemma that sustains this wave of creative destruction. And it's that organizations develop short-term efficiency at the expense of long-term adaptability. And this productivity dilemma formed the foundation for Clayton Christensen's work, which I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, um, and that was about the innovator's dilemma, right? And the innovator's dilemma speaks to a bias um, to exploit current customer needs and discount sort of future needs and future technologies that service those needs. And what, I mean, the real outcome of Clayton Christensen's work, work was that um, He showed that great companies fail not because they don't anticipate change. Often they're the first to anticipate change. They know their industries really well. What makes them fail is that they undervalue and deprioritize change efforts. Um, and a really good example of this is the story of Kodak, which I'm sure lots of you are familiar with, but Kodak was a giant in the film industry in the 90s, right? Um, but they just, they weren't able to jump onto the digital market when that came through in, in the sort of 2000s. They limped through the 2000s and eventually declared for, bank, uh, for bankruptcy in 2012, But what's interesting about the Kodak story is not that they went from being a giant to being insolvent, but that they actually were the first to develop and patent the digital camera in 1975. And they made a conscious decision not to prioritize those efforts, to put it aside, to focus on their core business, and milk it for all that it was worth. And by the time the change happened, it happened so quickly that even with their expertise in the space, they weren't able to adapt and change. So yeah, it's a, it's a scary story um, which I'll touch on a bit later some more. So the fundamental problem facing organizations, right, is that they have to be dedicating enough effort to their current, their current business, right, to be optimizing and exploiting their current business, but at the same time they must be allocating resourcing and effort to sort of exploring new opportunities to ensure their future relevance. Um, And this is a a research area which, again, not specific to the Fourth Industrial Revolution but part of the broader context, and was investigated in detail by James March in the early 1990s. And what he found is that there is just this, across industries, there is this natural tendency to prioritize business as usual. Incremental growth, you know, exploiting what you're doing well already. It's natural, right? It's, It's easier it's more predictable, shareholders like it, incentives are sort of three to five years, you know, all of these things push us to the sort of business as usual. But, but focusing on the business as usual in the short term is ultimately self-destructive and drives that sort of decline that you typically see in the business life cycle. So, I mean, ultimately then the solution to all of this is quite simple. The solution is to find balance. We have to exploit to to retain current relevance and explore to retain future relevance. But as we've seen, it's not that easy to do. Lots of consultants and researchers have come up with great sort of models to to try to achieve this balance. Um, So some you would have heard of are like McKinsey's Three Horizons of Growth, there's Dual Transformation, there's Exponential Organizations. There are a lot of these different models out there, but Very few organizations have been able to sort of achieve this change um, and and to sort of manage these trade-offs. And in fact, there are some, I mean Clayton Christensen is one, that sort of advocates that, well has before, I don't know if he's changed his mind, that um, for large incumbents it's impossible to do. It's impossible to manage the trade-offs when you're that large and that big with so much inertia, it's impossible to manage. So I mean that's a little bit scary. Uh, so for, for me, I mean, going through a lot of sort of organizational literature, and for me, a model that really resonated was the ambidextrous organization. Um, that was developed by a Harvard business school professor and a, a Stanford business school professor who developed this ambidextrous organization almost uh, 20 years ago, but have since sort of developed and verified with companies like IBM. And it's, come, it's really come out as a very compelling paradigm, which is starting to be applied more and more in the business world. I've um, written a separate paper on that, if you're interested. But um, for the purposes of this, um, this sort of paper and this research, I focused on just one aspect of an amb- ambidextrous organization, and that's the the leadership aspect. So this is, this is the part of the ambidextrous organization that is noted as most difficult to achieve and yet most in- important in order to become ambidextrous. Um, and that's about getting a leadership team, ultimately, who's able to sort of develop these dynamic capabilities that counteract a dogmatic inclination towards consistency, towards maintaining stability, towards trade-off and zero-sum thinking. Um, these are all things that are heavily embedded in traditional management you know, training and literature, but all things that sort of counter the speed of change, the creative destruction, the fourth industrial revolution type movement that we're seeing. So, yeah, interesting. Okay, so. With that broad context, we're gonna zoom back in again and go back to this resilience question. So, are we, as an industry, innately resilient? Um, The research suggests that there are two key factors that have been driving this resilience in the past. The first are industry protection mechanisms, and these are things that we're very much familiar with in the industry, so things like the complexity of the industry, the dense legislation, complex distribution networks and channels, high capital requirements, sort of new business strain, huge data requirements, all these kind of things make it very difficult for externals to come in and change things, and even for internals, in fact, it sort of drive change. The second driver is the interesting trust dynamic in the insurance industry, which is also something that we're familiar with, but I'd like to sort of dig into it a little bit more. Um, So insurance is ultimately a trust transaction, right? You're paying a premium for something that you actually may never get, or if you do get, it will be well into the future. Um, And what IBM found in a 2017 study is that less than 50% of people trust their insurers, and that this statistic has remained below 50% for the last 10 years. I mean, this is crazy, right? We're an industry of trust, and yet our customers, the majority of our customers don't trust us. Um, and then, locally, if we look at sort of like local examples, there was a, um, a old mutual claim, a Kruger claim in two thousand and seventeen, which caused a huge social uproar. Then we had the momentum claim at the end of last year, also a lot of social outrage um, and and both of them declining claims very much in line with policy rules, but absolutely unaccepted by society and I mean, I, I, I mean, it was frustrated with me being in my MBA class. These are smart people. They all thought that insurers are crooks. Um, and even I get sick when I'm at home. Right, my husband's in asset management. Also, you know, well-educated. He thinks insurance insurers are absolute crooks. And I, I mean, we've been together for a long time, and I'm very opinionated, and I have still not convinced him. Insurers are crooks, and we milk our customers and mislead our customers constantly. I, it's, a, it's a really difficult place to be. Um, so, I mean, the impact are, are in terms of resilience, of industry protection mechanisms is pretty clear. The trust one is a little bit more interesting because although it's our biggest problem, it also ends up helping us out a lot. So, on one hand, for, for incumbents, because we have such a precarious relationship with our customers, we're very hesitant of doing anything new or crazy or changing anything too much, so it inhibits that sort of innovation. But on the other hand, it protects us to a great extent because it means that if if people don't trust the insurance industry, they're very hesitant of new players coming in, right? So new player comes in, they don't have a track record of paying claims for 50, 100, 150 years. It's very difficult to break into our space. Even though our customers hate us, that that trust dynamic often plays into our favor. So um, (laughs) yeah, sorry, hate was maybe a strong word. Um, okay, on the um, on the market side, this was interesting as well. So for the execs that I interviewed unanimously agreed, right? The insurance industry has been slow um, to adapt to change. What was interesting for me more was the two distinct uh, views that emerged on this about why we had been slow. The first half very much felt that they just hadn't really got to it. And I think this quote speaks to it quite nicely and I I hope it it might resonate with some of you, but it speaks to just like, it's just so hard to keep our business going, it's so complicated, we just don't have any sort of mind space left to think about how do we change things in the future. And I think that's relevant in a lot of companies today. The other piece, interestingly, was um, uh, was an intentional piece. So half of interviewees felt that this sort of slow approach was intentional, right? They, they were very much adopting a clear transitional strategy. We're focusing on our core business and we're doing a little bit of innovation on the periphery. And if anything bites or anything changes, we'll just rapidly scale that thing and be be on the ball. Um, and um, I mean, yeah I think this this part the justifications were often things relating to the South African context, you know financial literacy, market readiness, access to tech sure fair um but to me, this sounded scarily like the kodak story and I, and I'll pick on that a little bit more later so i mean pulling those things to those two things together ultimately these these sort of industry protection mechanisms and trust dynamics have given us a false sense of security in the strategies that, have empl- that we've employed to date, right? I, I don't believe that we've m- remained resilient because we've been smart about our strategies. I think we've remained resilient because we're lucky that we have some of these features in place that have been protecting us. Um, and sure, if they carry on protecting us, great, then we can carry on being lucky. But if we look at some of these features in the context of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, they're not looking as secure as they have in the past. If you consider industry protection mechanisms, um, sort of as new sources of technology emerge, they're becoming a lot cheaper, value chains disaggregating, um, specialized services are becoming available more easily for sort of new entrants or alternative industries. Things can be done better, right? Things can be done better and cheaper. Um, Complexity can be deconstructed into manageable fragments by leveraging this sort of ecosystem play, and new distribution options are also becoming available. So a lot challenging those mechanisms there. And on the trust side, you know, there are far better ways to excite and delight our customers these days relative to the sort of customer journeys that they're used to on the insurance side. Um, And and a better customer experience goes some way to countering these sort of trust concerns. The sales captive space is seeing a lot of development at the moment, and that offers a nice easy route to market for for an alternative industry that has a nice warm relationship with its brand. Um, uh, with its customers through its brand. And then also the sort of social movements of an increased demand for transparency. There's sort of the social validation drive. All those sorts of things become a lot easier in this new world using technology, and particularly for new entrants who aren't encumbered by legacy systems and potentially reputational hiccups of the past. So. Now we've established that the resilience, the sort of like sit back and relax approach is not going to serve us well going into the future, so what do we actually do about this? Um, And I think these are kind of some of the immediate things that come to mind, right? So let's restructure, the transformation, new leadership team, um, and some of these things. And, And absolutely, I think these are valid concerns, but sort of my personal view on this is that There are a host of practices, of beliefs, of biases and behaviors within our industry which could ultimately serve to undermine any of these strategies. And so my thinking is that in order to sort of effectively address and and, and sort of adopt change, a change that will be sustainable, we need to understand all these beliefs and practices and address them proactively. Um, So that's where a lot of my research uh, focused is looking at... um, what these, what these practices are. I've looked at those that both enable um, and should be sort of amplified and those that inhibit, which we should try to eradicate. So let's look into that. And I'll run through these quite quickly. But the first is um, partnerships. Uh, where am I here? Um, so what, what uh, two-thirds of interviewees acknowledged is that they have, there's an appetite for partnerships, right? And, and this is great, this is showing that that guys in the industry understand that we can't do everything and that potentially others outside could do things better than us and we could learn we could partner and and achieve these things so um And and I think if you think about it, the insurance industry has a very long and complicated value chain, and I question whether our ultimate value to our customers is not being compromised because we're just spreading ourselves too thin and we're not focusing on what we're great at. We're kind of getting caught up in doing things better that we're just not great at. Um, And this sort of, this appetite for partnerships and the emergence of the ecosystem space is very much uh, provides an opportunity for us to address that. Um this kind of just is a quote from um, from one of the exets that that gives a sense of what this future world will look like sort of partnering more and and providing a richer offering through partnering with with others. Um the next piece is leadership and and this was quite interesting for me because um we see politically, that leaders are, that respect for leaders is possibly on the decline, (laughs) but in the life insurance space, leaders come through very powerfully. There's like a very clear, strong respect for leadership in the life insurance industry, and I'm not sure that leaders even appreciate how much influence they have on their sort of broader staff base, and this is very promising because ultimately it means that leaders are in a very powerful position to sort of direct the changes that we need to see. The flip side of that is that three quarters of um, interviewees felt that they were confident with their leaders' ability to drive business as usual and those sort of optimization type efforts, but were less comfortable with their ability to drive change. And a third of interviewees actually highlighted excessive risk aversion and specifically a prevailing actuarial mindset. As as contributing to this Um, and I'll I'll leave you with that tidbit we'll pick up on that later it's quite concerning for all all of us I think Um, and and this I think was quite a nice quote from a leader talking about change I'll just read it quickly it says humans don't like change so our tendency is to be more incremental many leaders have come from a world where change was something that you went through and then it finished and then there was stability we now live in a world where change is constant and I think this talks to possibly also a generational aspect, you know, of, of a discomfort with dealing with a world where you no longer have stability. There is no such thing as stability. It's sort of constant change. And being able to sort of feel comfortable and deal with that constant change is something that not, not all of us and all of our leaders are necessarily equipped to do. Okay, the next positive was People. So, two-thirds of interviewees recognize that people are fundamental to ultimately achieving the change directed by leaders. And this is promising. This links nicely with the literature, which talks to skills relevance, which talks to um, continuous learning, and ultimately talks to human technology collaboration. But again, like leadership, there was a little bit of a shadow here in that most of the interviewees felt that... People offered a more of a plug-and-play type solution, so it's about bringing in someone to come fix this thing or finding an expert to come, sort of lead this this thing for us. Um, and and this is really missing missing the gap, like we spoke about earlier, the sort of real opportunity that's sitting in our businesses, and also about reaching that tipping point in our businesses that we need to override the sort of cultural and structural inertia that currently exists. Um, so promising but a little bit of a shadow. Then if we move to the inhibitors, these are the practices that sort of hold us back. And, and again, this is not a typo, but the first one is partnerships, again. So whereas I, I said two-thirds of interviewees recognize the need for partnerships as being important to moving into the future, every single one of them displayed discomfort about executing these partnerships. And digging a little deeper, there were a few key features that drove this. The first was the lack of trust, right? We know our customers don't trust us and we feel very uncomfortable about threatening that trust positioning. So we're hesitant about doing new things, about partnering with externals and sort of threatening that relationship. The next piece was the the tone set by leadership also, which we've kind of spoken about is that um, Similarly, if leaders are feeling this sort of distrust and the protectionist attitude, which I'll speak to next, um, it sort of sets that tone throughout the business. And if your leaders aren't comfortable to partner or are questioning partners, it, it very much creates a certain mindset that guides the rest of the business. And the last piece that I mentioned is the protectionist attitude. And I think I'll, these, this is explained nicely by quotes. Um, but I think many of us can relate to this, right? In a corporate environment, we're being schooled to think that if you don't protect your IP, someone's going to steal it. And this is not the kind of attitude that you can go, that you can develop a win-win partnership with. Um, similarly, this one, that it's about making sure that you don't get done in and about getting that more from your, out of your partner than, than they're getting. Um, And this is, I mean, sure, this is great for short-term value maximization, but for sort of long-term potential delivery and value creation, this is really quite a destructive attitude to have. So there is a clear challenge there on wanting to execute partnerships, but not really having the right mindset to derive the most value from them. Um, The next piece was a lack of agility, and this is something which our industry really struggles with. This was over 90% of interviewees noted this as a major challenge. Um, But again, like the partnerships, it's sort of a symptom of some deep issues, the obvious ones being the inertias, right? So our industry's been going for almost 200 years locally, and, and sort of 200 years traveling on that that business life cycle. There's huge amounts of systems and structures and behaviors that have been developed to sort of optimize our journey and create that inertia. The next piece is the, um, wait, I think I've got a quote on that, yeah, this is quite a nice one. One of the interviewees said that like, changing the life insurance industry is a bit like trying to move a graveyard. I mean, it just, it's just so, there's so much pressure against it. it it's almost impossible. Um, The next piece is about execution, and this was something that came through clearly. Our industry is not short of smart people with fantastic ideas and and sort of great new, exciting, creative avenues to run down, but really the challenge is about executing. And sure, the inertia's contribute to struggle, that struggle with execution, Um, but it's really something that we need to address in order to transform or adapt our industry going forward. The last piece is the risk aversion piece that contributes to, um, to agility or lack of agility. And this is where we come in. <laughs> um, and I think I'll start with some quotes. So this is what one of the execs referred to it as, or yeah, referred to our mindset as, a rational, highly cynical actuarial mindset. And another one said, this is the typical response from an actuary when trying to under, you know, undergo change or enter into a new project. Um, and <laughs> okay, so um, we can we can definitely kind of argue against these things, um, but I think the point is the perception is there, and and I think at the very least it requires that we that we sort of do some honest reflection on this. Are we really hampering the development of our own industry? Are we are we comfortable with the changing risk environment? I mean, ultimately, that's what we are—risk specialists, right? But are we not, are we sort of failing to keep up with the changing world around us? Um, and given the sort of prevalence of actuaries in the life insurance space, this is we make a huge difference in that space. Even at ASA, I think at the end of last year, 56% of fellow members were practicing in the life insurance space, um, and that sort of dwarfs the next practice area. I think it was by more than three times. So most of us are in the life insurance space. We have significant influence, and yet the perception is that we're holding the life insurance industry back. So, something to think about. Okay. Oh, speaking so slowly. Okay, um, the last piece on this is just the um, urgency side. So, a lack of urgency. And this we saw come through in the resilience discussion. Um, and, and that's that people feel that they can sit back. You know, they've sat back in the past and done well. Um, but really, what, I mean, what the research shows that in a, in a rapidly changing environment like we are seeing, Sitting back is a clear road to the end of the business life cycle, and particularly in a context where you lack agility and your transitional strategy involves quickly scaling, there's a massive discontinuity there that is quite concerning. Okay, so let's quickly skip over those and wrap it up. Um, before we have a discussion, which I hope you're all ready for. Um, So I've shared a lot of information, right? There's a lot here. So I think definitely, if you have not read my paper, go read that and sort of get all the information in. But I've demonstrated that the resilience that we've experienced to date is not because of our greatness necessarily, it's because of largely external mechanisms. Um, The Fourth Industrial Revolution, I've shared some what sort of impacts of that is and how that's contributing to eroding these mechanisms. I've shared um, some of the broader context, that continuous cycle of destruction that we can learn from in the past, the success syndrome, the dilemmas, and the supposedly simple solution of balance. There's a clear need for us to adapt and I've looked at some of the underlying sort of practices and beliefs that can help us to do that and some of them that we really need to honestly reflect on or curb in order to prevent undermining any change. Okay, so with this all fresh in your minds, what I'd like to do now is look at a few sort of potential future scenarios. So these are just a few scenarios that I think are potentially you know, potential outcomes over the next few years. And I, what I'd like to do is sketch them out a little bit for you and then ask you, what do you think? I mean, I, I mean, please just sort of, I'd like to make it a discussion. So how likely do you think these outcomes are? How significant do you think they'll be for our industry? What should the incumbents be doing to respond? Um, should they respond at all? Those kind of discussions. So if you don't say anything, I may pick on people because I know some of you. So. Just be prepared. Um, the first is the cell captive space and what I'm considering a sort of reinvigoration of the cell captive space. So this is one of those innovations that South Africa is also famous for, this sort of cell captive space, been plagued a little bit by legislation in the past. But Really, it offers a a massive opportunity for external interests. It it addresses a lot of those industry protection mechanisms, like complexity and legislation and capital requirements. Makes it easy for a a brand with a nice, warm customer relationship to come in and create a new alternative source of revenue. But the cell captive space really benefits in the future from these ecosystems that are emerging. It allows them to really help new entrants to optimize their proposition by tapping into these ecosystems unencumbered by legacy systems and structures, um, and source new forms of distribution, um, optimize engagement models, those kind of things. And we are seeing um, new sort of ecosystem players in this space, like Root. Um, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with Root. Definitely give them a Google. But um, ultimately they are about facilitating this insurance ecosystem for new entrants and provide the sort of means and guidance to put together an optimal proposition in the insurance space. Um, Another sort of interesting play in this space is is Commotion, which is a tech company which bridges the gap between tech and deep knowledge of the life insurance industry. And ultimately what they can help their clients to achieve is sort of optimized operations, but also far clearer and stronger data management and analytics uh, capacity. So there's lots going on in this space, and I think potential for some, some interesting things to emerge. The next one is the startup space. So we've seen some startups come through already in the last few years. So just to name a few. Simply, Hero Life and Indie are all ones that have got a lot of publicity, naked and pineapple, more on the short term side, but hints at entering the life insurance space. Now to date these guys haven't really got huge amounts of traction. They've struggled with sort of branding, with retentions, with those kinds of things. But arguably they could hit their stride and really sort of make a real impact in our in our industry and start picking up new business ahead of startups. So there's there's huge potential here for one of these guys or a new guy to come in, guy or girl, company, to come in and, and make a big change. The next is a tech entrance. So this is one one we've heard of before and hasn't happened yet, but ultimately this is about a, a sort of a big tech company with a big warm customer base, distribution not gonna be an issue, capital not gonna be an issue, trust, less of an issue, um, and, and really disrupting our space. And a, a survey done in 2018 um, by the World Insurance Report showed that 30% of insurance customers would prefer to buy insur- their insurance from a big tech player. And this is not new business, people out there that don't have policies. These are people sitting on our books, 30% that if tomorrow they had the option to buy from Google, they would switch. So that could be, could be a massive play. Um, The next is a partnership play. Now we've already seen Capitec and Sunlam partner up in 2018, and they've done really well. So by mid-year, by June, I think in their first 13 months, they'd sold over a million funeral policies. And I think what's even more impressive is what they told the market is that 70% of those policies are still in force. So they're doing really well there. But but potentially there are all sorts of other partnership opportunities there um, that we could sort of tap into. Uh, I was going to discuss a few, but I think we can all use our imaginations. Who has nice relationships with their customers and how could we sort of piggyback off that nice relationship and that distribution potential on the insurance side? Then the last one is just pretty much BAU, right? So this is saying that in the next five to ten years, we sort of carry on as we have. We do a few little peripheral innovations, a few little tweaks to our customer journey, but that nothing really changes that much. And that's kind of, that's where, that's where I'm going to leave it, in terms of specking out these future scenarios. So I'd like to sort of understand from you how likely you think these scenarios are, or actually even if you think everything that I've said is rubbish and that we can carry on doing what we've been doing, or that we've been doing a great job at it. I don't know. Any views on any of these future scenarios or any of the other sort of stuff that I've shared. This is when I'm going to start picking on people, just if Yes,
3: Tim. Yeah, Tim from Commotion, so thank you, Lynn, (laughs) for the (laughs) shout out. Um, All right, so uh, I I think that really where uh, insurers at the moment have a a key competitive advantage is in distribution, obviously, right? Um, You you mentioned a bit about the brand and trust. I think that you, you may find, or it's my it's my view, that people will answer on a survey 50%, only 50% trust the brand, but when it comes to selecting a life insurer, often they will go for the brand that they have at least heard of, right? And at le- the brand that they've at least known about for a while, and perhaps that their parents know about. Um, so, uh, brand is incredibly important. I think still, even for the incumbents. Um, sketch a bit about how you've how you think about the future in terms of distribution um, and how the incumbents can leverage that, the trust in their brands to, to uh, look for alternative distribution methods.
0: Cool. Um, I mean, this might be jumping a little bit into my sort of wrap-up, but, yeah, that's a, it's an interesting point. And I think I alluded to it when I said that, you know, trust also helps us in that what startups are seeing is that even though they aren't encumbered by these reputational issues in the past, they actually struggle to get customers because customers still like the idea that Old Mutual has been paying claims for over 100 years, you know, and they've seen that brand from when they were a child to when they were adult. Their grandparents are familiar with it. There's definitely still some value in that. So, I mean, we're fortunate, but, but I do think that that there are still sort of factors and, and more sort of social movements that are driving a change in the relationship or how, we, how people determine trust or what are the kinds of factors that drive trust. So this sort of um, uh, transparency requirement, right? There's more and more emphasis on transparency and an expectation of transparency from consumers. And this is something that incumbent insurers struggle with just because... They are so complex, right they've been building these businesses for decades. Um, I mean even discovery is almost thirty years old <laughs> um, and and I think that that incumbents will struggle with transparency and that's something to consider for them going forward. There's also that sort of social validation movement, and that's a really difficult one for incumbents because they have these reputational this reputational baggage that they are carrying with them, and it's you know and people I like to complain more than they like to say great things. So, you know, that social validation piece is quite difficult. But yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the answers are. I don't know what the best distribution, distribution solution is going forward. Um, I, I can kind of present to you what I think are the drivers, but I'd be interested if anyone in the audience has ideas on what they think could really sort of change things up in their comfort space and, like, leveraging that brand. I I guess that goes to sort of some of these outcomes, right? Using that sort of logic, that brand is just such an overriding, uh, you know, driver of success of the life insurance industry. Are any of these options, okay, aside from the last one, um, any of the other options, are they going to drive meaningful change given that brand and trust are so important? Maybe, like, I probably should have used the app, and that's really bad that I'm not in this technology discussion, but let's raise hands. So how many people think that in the next five years, the life insurance industry will be very similar to how it is now, like not much disruption? So the incumbents are still the ones uh, driving the industry and benefiting the most? Raise of hands. (laughs) Okay, let's say next 10 years, next 10 years. few less Um, and and these kind of scenarios that I've painted out I mean they're not mutually exclusive these these sort of scenarios driving significant change so I'm not saying whether they happen or not I'm saying whether they happen and make a big difference to the insurance industry how likely do you think that is yes if you think it's likely Wow okay I mean, like, I suppose that's a point of what I'm challenging, right, is that this sort of general lack of urgency. I question whether this kind of attitude, which is assuming that we can continue safely into the future, that the sort of trust dynamic is enough to carry us over for the next 10 years, is going to be what bites us in the end. Um, and, And, yeah, I really question that. But I see there's a question, so let's go.
1: Hi, Lynn. My name is Jacques from Zurich. Um, I'd like to get your view on something else, because in in, in my experience, it's not about getting people excited about change, it's about trying to get them to be excited, still excited about it tomorrow. Because I think a lot of these things, you know, we we talk about blockchain, and everybody's excited about blockchain for six months, and then nobody really manages to make any big money, and then it dies out. Uh, And then the next thing comes, and if we look at Kodak, isn't that what happened? is that essentially they knew where things were going. There was excitement, as you said, 1975, a bit of excitement which then died down and then one lost track of the others that slowly built up and then just suddenly rapidly uh, executed. And so the question is actually, how do we keep the pace of change and keep people excited to keep doing this if maybe you've come across some of those thoughts in the interviews that you've done?
0: Sure. Um so one with Kodak, I think it was a little bit different in that there it was a conscious decision to set aside digital. And they, were, they it was a conscious decision to continue focusing on their existing business and really milk that for all it was worth. Um but but I but I appreciate your point. Um I think that oh I had such a great train of thought and then it just flew out while I was talking about Kodak. Um, <laughs> um Sorry, remind me your question again about, oh, oh, oh. what my point was and what I'd like to sort of come back to you and challenge you with is that, that sort of linear thinking of saying, blockchain, let's do something cool with it, and then that comes away. And then artificial intelligence, yes, let's do something cool with it. And I think that's kind of where we're missing the beats a little bit, is that we can't, sort of the way that we've thought about things in the past, and it's always worked really well for us, right? It's like, here's this new thing, let's do it, let's optimize, let's put it in. That's kind of not how the world will be working in the future. It's more about sort of stepping back and not trying to keep up with technologies as they're emerging. That's impossible. It's about rethinking how we do things entirely. It's not about looking at specific technologies. It's about looking how is the world fundamentally changing? What is the purpose I'm trying to achieve? Not how do I plug this particular technology in, but how is how is the world changing, and how can I better achieve this purpose, regardless of whatever is out there, whatever thing that I can use to do that. So that's quite a wishy-washy answer, but, but I do think we need to start changing the way that we think about things. And I see Dave glaring at me. So at this point, <laughs> I'm gonna wrap up, sorry, and, um, and I'll be here for like five minutes afterwards if anyone wants to chat, and otherwise I love coffees and stuff, so if anyone wants to grab a coffee, at some point. Um, can I wrap up quickly? Okay, thanks. <laughs> okay, I want to do this quickly. I think, so, I mean, the point is to take all this information, right, and to really think about, and given the potential fut- future scenarios, like what are the, re- what, what kind of changes can we take now? What are the things that I would suggest that you sort of think about when you go back to work tomorrow? And the first is, for each of us, And for each of our organizations and for an industry as a whole to question the source of our resilience, right? What is it that's really keeping us keeping us going? Will that thing remain? Given the changes that we're seeing, how long will it remain? What do we need to do? um, what, What kind of future state are we actually aiming for? And what do we need to do now to get there? And in particular, given that we struggle with agility and execution, how do we address those practices and behaviors directly to ensure that we can get to that future relevant state? Um, for the actual waral community, I think you know it's important for us to question what what is it that we're doing? Are we contributing to the future of this industry, or are we holding it back? Um, and you know and and about selling that positioning in the business because the the position or well, the uh, perception currently is that we're not necessarily. Um, the next is to tap into the ecosystem. Find a way to tap into this in- ecosystem. Think carefully about your v- value chain. Do you need to control that entire value chain? What are the things that you 're actually great at? Focus on those things and and get and partner with others to sort of do things that they 're better at. Um, if you have a sell captive license, leverage that thing. Think about how you can use that to sort of experiment more to build brands, um, build relationships with trusted brands. Um, I think it's it's important to realize that fintechs and insurtechs aren't such a big threat. A 2019 McKinsey survey showed that less than 10% of insurtechs are actually looking to disrupt the insurance model. Almost two-thirds of them are actually just looking to target pieces of the value chain and integrate with incumbent insurers. This is a massive opportunity. This is more an opportunity at the moment than it is something to be scared of. The next is the trust dynamic and i know this is something we have grappled with for decades and i don't have the perfect solution but i question you know a lot of companies have taken this customer centricity approach which they've spoken really loudly about and i question the sort of the reality of it is it just a nice story and a nice rapper are we fundamentally doing things differently um i think it's even important to question can we actually rehabilitate our our industry. Can we convince people that we are trustworthy, that we are doing things for the interest of our customers? And if we can't, at least in the short term, maybe it's worth considering taking a different approach, focusing on the spin-off side. You know, uh, leveraging yourself captives to experiment independently, developing a new trust environment that we can work in outside of the traditional insurance industry. And lastly, the people side. I think I, I've spoken about this enough, but ultimately you know, reaching that tipping point to move our organizations apart from the sort of inertia that's holding us back means educating our people and it means embedding that, that sort of continuous learning and skills relevance across the organization, right from the board level, the executive level, all the way down to the guys that are sort of data capturing our policies. Um, so yeah, I've made some more, sp- I've put lots of questions out there, I've made some more specific recommendations in my paper, and I'd love to chat about any more ideas um, if anyone wants to, but that's a wrap.
2: So, um, so Linda's rushing to catch a flight, but I think I'm right in saying that her email address is on her paper, which if you hadn't, haven't read it yet, and you need one more reason to do so in case you missed it this morning was the recipient of the best paper by a first-time author at, uh, at the convention, and I think that's what Joe's is like to hand over now. Uh, thank you, Vin.
0: Uh, <laughs> be okay, thanks everyone. I'll stay here for a few minutes. Um,